morning. Guys, I'd like you to repeat after me today, okay? This is how it goes. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Yeah, you got that one. Good job. All right. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is over all and in all and through all. Okay, this snippet, this, this three-verse pack that you just said, it comes out of this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus. And in this, this little three-verse snippet is really what Paul is about. So many people think of Paul as the ivory tower intellectual. But Paul was a pastor and missionary at heart, and he was driven by what you just said, this one body formulated by one spirit, who are pulled together through one faith, one Lord, one baptism. This body is what drove Paul, his life, his work, his writing. And it can be summed up in a Greek word that I showed you last week. Here it is again, koinonia. Koinonia can be translated in a number of different ways, but the one that I like the best is right there, the fellowship of faith. Paul is driven by this thing called the fellowship of faith. Now, where I want to take this this morning with you is, 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 is into new ground, something that is inextricably woven in with koinonia. And it's another Greek word that you're going to have to learn, because if you do one, why not two, right? And and it's similar, so you've got to be careful, okay? We've got koinonia. This one is diakonia. Give me a diakonia. Now, you actually met this word last week. I gave you a passage, and it said this. It was God who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, you see works of service in there? That phrase is translating diakonia. The koinonia is built up when people do diakonia. Now, diakonia can be translated, of course, works of service, but really it encompasses anything that falls in the the parameters of mercy or charity. Anytime you show mercy or charity, do some act of mercy or charity, that is what Paul will write as diakonia. Are you with me? So what I want to do today is show you how koinonia, the body, the fellowship of faith, from a New Testament perspective, is inextricably woven with diakonia, how the two are inseparable and how they go hand in hand. And what I'd like to do is take you on a bit of a um, travelogue here. We're going to do a bit of a, a, a guided tour through Paul, specifically in Acts, and how diakonia comes out of the core and center of who he is. So, let's start here. How does the koinonia respond in times of need? 
Now, in the beginning of Acts, you get this phenomenal picture of what life was like in the early church or the early koinonia. And it says a number of things that they did. For one, it says all the believers were together and had everything in koinonia. Okay? More than that, it says that selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. It pushes it further. And it says that they broke bread in their homes. They shared. They ate together. They took what was theirs and they opened it to others. They practiced those deep Hebraic roots of hospitality. And they did it with glad and sincere hearts. And the result of this was it said there was no needy persons among them. Imagine a picture of Koinonia where there is no needy person among them because of the top three. And this is the picture that the Bible paints of what koinonia should be like. Now, a little bit later in Acts, it starts to describe some of how this functioned and how this played out. It said that when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews started to complain against the Hebraic Jews because the Greeks are always whining about something. And they started to complain because their widows were being overlooked in the daily it says distribution, but in the daily diakonia of food, the daily giving, the daily sharing, the daily act of charity or mercy. Because what happened there in that early church was a mindset that said, if there is someone in need, they're my responsibility. They'd say, you're, you're like a brother or a sister to me, they saw these widows, these widows who had no recourse of their own. And they said, you know what? You're part of koinonia. You're family to me. And this is a picture of what koinonia is supposed to be like. Now, Paul is converted around 36 A.D., it's shortly on the heels of the martyrdom of a, of a diaconia or deacon named Stephen who gets stoned for his testimony for the faith. And Paul was a part of this murder. Shortly thereafter, in about 36 AD, Paul is converted to Christ. Now, when this martyrdom happened, it caused persecution to start expanding throughout the Judean region and in the Jerusalem church. And it caused a bit of a refugee crisis of their own. And wherever there's refugees, there's a lot of need, right? And they start to scatter, homeless, without resource, away from their business. They start to scatter and find themselves settling in other regions around the area. Now, Paul, in the midst of this, he finds himself by Acts chapter 11 in a city called Antioch. And Barnabas, one of these people that was part of the early church, goes there to look for Paul. He finds him in Tarsus, brings him to Antioch, and it's there that they begin to teach them and that these early believers are first called Christians. Now, I threw a map up here just to kind of help you visualize what's going on. So the persecution starts here and people start to scatter all throughout here. Now, Tarsus, Paul's hometown, is there. And Paul or Barnabas takes Paul and brings him to Antioch here. The best way to think about Antioch is this. Think about Jerusalem like the Vatican, okay? 
almost like a mothership center of the church. Think about Antioch like Willow Creek, a big, large church up out on the fringe who is leading people and doing mission work of their own. And this is where Paul roots himself out of. Now, while they were there, a few things started to happen that started to um, exacerbate the refugee crisis going on from Jerusalem. Acts talks about it. First, it says there was this prophet named Agabus, and he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. So not only do you have refugee crisis, now you have famine on top of it. Not only that, the year is now about 47 A.D. It's a Sabbath year. And what a Sabbath year means is that you don't plant your fields. You leave them fallow, meaning there's no crop coming from the ground. So not only do you have refugee crisis, you have famine. And on top of famine, you're not even growing food in a limited supply. And all of this came together in a perfect storm. And the koinonia found themselves in desperate need. So what's a church like Antioch to do? It says that the disciples, called Christians now at Antioch, each according to his ability, decided to provide, and it says help, right? Decided to provide diakonia, for the brothers living in Judea. Because the reality is that at times the koinonia will find itself in times of need. The koinonia will face struggles and issues, sometimes not of their own making, that are thrust upon them, that leaves them in a place of desperation. And what seems central to the Bible and to Paul is that koinonia, if it's going to mean anything, has to equate to diakonia as well. So each, according to his ability, they decide to provide help. They say, these are our brothers. These are our, we, we've got to help these people. And it says that they did, and they sent their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and, well, Saul, Paul. Same guy. It's fascinating to me that I think most people, when they think of Paul, they think of those missionary journeys he took, right? And, and I think most people almost think of himself as Paul is self-appointed. Paul is like, I got a vision, I've got to go. Rogue missionary. If you read Acts closely, it's not the case. Paul got to start with diakonia. Paul got to start. He got on the road. His missionary journeys began out of a desire and, and an appointment by the church to bring acts of mercy and charity to believers around the Roman Empire in need. Now, all of this to me is revealing of something. Mission and mercy have to go hand in hand, at least from a New Testament 
perspective. There's this uh, early church father, second century, his name is Ignatius. He writes this, where there is Christ, there is the church. Later, a guy named Leahy, he writes this, mission is nothing but the one church of God in motion. And where the church is in motion, there is not only mission, there's mercy. Koinonia, without diakonia, is meaningless. Are you, are, are you with me? And this resonated deep with Paul. I mean, this drove him. And it's easy to miss and overlook if you're not keyed in that way. Paul writes in one of his letters a bit of an autobiography. He shares his story about what, what moved him and motivated him. You can find this in Galatians. He says when, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars of that early church, Perceived that grace was given to me. Paul is saying this. They gave me the right hand of koinonia. They gave it to Barnabas and me. That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And we think of Paul, missionary to the Gentiles. You see how the verse ends? Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do because for Paul, mission in mercy, were completely inseparable. Because for Paul, koinonia was tangible. It seemed to transcend just a, a sense of belonging or a feeling like I should be here. It was something that was rooted and expressed in real-time tangible Acts, because for Paul, koinonia didn't only have a vertical dimension, kind of a me and God, you know? It also included a me and others, and the two could not be separated. This is why Jesus, for example, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? You remember this? Someone comes up, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And I love his answer because he can't boil it down. He can't give one. He has to give two. He says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself because there isn't one greatest commandment. There are two. And for Jesus, they can't be separated or if you want to give this teeth, I love how one of Jesus' first followers, a guy named John, puts this. He writes this. All right? It's like, oh. You know, I, whenever I read this, I get like, remember Princess Bride? Remember the movie? I always get the picture of that old hag. Liar! Right? Right? <laughs> Queen of slime, of refuse. <laughs> you say you love God? but you don't love each other. Liar. You say you're interested in mission and spraying the good news of Jesus without acts of mercy. Liar. You say fellowship and koinonia is so important to you, 
but there's no diakonia. Liar. And when you taste it personally, it all comes into relief, doesn't it? I've been blessed in my life to have been on the receiving end of diakonia in my life. I remember shortly after we were married, Tina and I, about 20 years ago now, geez, um, <laughs> feels like 43. <laughs> She's not here. All right, straight up, straight up. You know where my wife is right now? She's at home cleaning up explosive diarrhea from our dog this morning when I was walking out the house. That is diakonia. Give it up for Tina right there, all right? I remember when we were just married, and, uh, you, you know, I was in grad school going to SEM. We were broke. I remember we, 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 would, we, we would scope out the happy hours around St. Louis. They embraced them in a big way there in Missouri because they put out these full food spread buffets. And you learn that for a, a, a buck on some cheap swill or maybe a Coke, you could eat all that was set before you. Protein, baby. You could actually have meat. And I remember being there, and we were broke. And this guy from my, my home koinonia, if you would, to this day, don't know who he is receive an anonymous gift, brand new computer, didn't have one, 18-inch monitor. Now, that was something back in 1996, all right? It had the new Pentium chip, not that 486 nonsense. <laughs> this was the powerhouse upgrade. This, like, in its day, what was probably a $2,000 computer by those, those, those dollars back then, and there it was on the doorstep. UPS, sign here, please. The humbleness, the gratitude that it creates to be a recipient of diakonia. Have you been there? I have. I remember later at this, I'm still broke, by the way. <laughs> Milking out every last mile of this, this 85 Jeep Cherokee. The car was so cool. The car was such a lemon. And trying to get every last, counting down days to graduation and first call, right? Come on, God. You ever have these first? Come on, God. 10,000 more miles. Come on, God. 9,500 more miles. Milking. And, and, and the trans, it's rattling. It's, rattling. it's, it's humming. It's, it's leaking. You can't use first gear anymore. It was stick. You have to go straight in the second. I remember for a while after the starter went out, you ever do this on your stick? You got to kick start it. Tina, start pushing. I'm not going to push. I'm going to drive. Tina, start pushing. And then you kind of pop the clutch and get the car started. I remember living that way. And I learned about this, this emergency fund, I'll call it, that they had at the SEM to help people in need. I'm applying for that sucker. I got no shame. <laughs> I remember we had the money in the bank. We had the money to pay for a new transmission. That's about all we had. It would have gutted us. It would have put us back to zero. It would have taken every step that we've made towards purchasing a new car that we knew we needed. It would have taken it out at the knees. And I remember just graciously, without, without interrogation, without question, without, 
without suspicion or condescension. Him handing us a check for $1,300 for that trans one day. And to taste firsthand what diakonia is all about. To sense what it meant for people who, let's be honest, didn't really know me. Saw me as one as part of their koinonia. And said, you're my brother. And said to my wife, you're my sister. And I want to show it tangibly to you today. And what that does to a person, what it does is you come to a place in your life where you're not in need, but other, others around you happen to be. And to ask yourself the question, what does diakonia look like for me at this stage of the game? See, this, this thing called koinonia was inextricably linked with diakonia for Paul. For him, they were one and the same. And diakonia, it occupied him for over a decade. So many of the churches he visited, so many of the New Testament letters he wrote were in part bringing diakonia or requesting diakonia for others in the koinonia in need. I wonder, how many fewer letters in the New Testament would we have today if Paul was not driven by mercy for those in need? You know, it actually ended up leading to his death. The diakonia for the koinonia led to his arrest in Jerusalem and ultimate execution. And he knew it. He went in. They, in fact, the koinonia tried to stop him. They're giving him gifts to go, we know what's going on in the church. We know the famine. We know the refugees. We know the need. But Paul, you're a wanted man. They're looking for you. They want blood. You're going into the beehive, Paul. Don't, and they would beg. Read Acts someday. They would beg and plead. But Paul knew that there was people in need. Diakonia, baby. And he went full speed ahead into the hornet's nest and gave his life because that's how much the koinonia meant to him. For Paul, it wasn't intangible. Koinonia was expressed in the most real ways, as real as real could be. It began for him with the great diakonia that Jesus gave to him. And his life was motivated by nothing less than sharing what he received. You will find this throughout his letters. It is all over the place. I want to just show you one run here today. It comes from this letter that he wrote, one of them anyway, to a church in a city called Corinth. 
a church that was prosperous, a church that in the midst of the famine was not facing particular need. And he writes things to them like this. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will, talking about what the koinonia did for him. He writes things like, just as you excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness in your love, excel also in acts of mercy, diakonia, in giving. He says, our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. He writes, if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, no matter how small or large it might be, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. He writes this, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need, and there will be equality, or as Acts 4 pictured it, a time when in the koinonia, no one was in need. You come to chapter 9, he ain't done. He writes this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. You get the metaphor, sow and reap, right, farming? And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. He writes this, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, not pressured, not guilted. Man, God loves a, a cheerful giver. It's probably making too much of this, but, but the Greek word for, for cheerful is uh, hysterion, hysterical, is where we get the word. I always get this picture of someone like just giving, going, ah, you, you know, like, I, I don't know. It's, it's how my mind works. <laughs> he writes this, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness, he writes this, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. He writes this, this diakonia that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because love of God and love of neighbor are the same. Fellowship with God and fellowship with neighbor are the same. Koinonia and diakonia are the same. And for Paul, this transcended a local family or a local group. It expanded into a worldwide family and relationship of brothers and sisters in Christ of different nationality and race and background and position. For him, it was nothing short of a global call of the living and risen God. 
Now, my, my point in sharing all of this with you today is not to make some kind of specific appeal or call to action. There's a place for those things, but that's not what I'm going after today. My point is this, that if I can help you see how central diaconia is to the Bible, to Paul, and to the fellowship of faith, that maybe it becomes more central for you as well. In closing, I think of something Jesus said. It's, it's kind of like one of the coolest passages ever. I mean, everything Jesus said is cool, but then there's like really cool. Um, but if you think about it, it doesn't seem true. Have you ever had that? You kind of like read something Jesus says, it's like, man, that's profound. And then you actually think about it, and you're like, wait a minute, that isn't true. Here it is. Jesus writes to his disciples, seek, or, or says to his disciples, seek first his kingdom, God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's amazing stuff. Is, is that not like brought you hope in dark days at times when you're when your motivations felt conflicted, when you stood at crossroads of which way you would go. Go, God, if I seek you, you know. He writes this on the heels or says this on the heels of going, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll drink. Don't worry about what you wear. God, God knows what you need. Look at how he feeds the birds of the air. Look at how he clothes the lilies of the field. I tell you, not even Solomon in all his wealth and splendor was dressed as beautifully as they. God knows that you need them. Don't worry about what you'll eat or drink or wear. Pagans run after such things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And it sounds great, but have you ever actually thought about it? Because around the world today, there are people who are seeking first God's kingdom that are giving up their very lives, that are without homes, without food, without medical care, without sanitation, who are starving and dying. And Jesus isn't naive. It was true in his day, too. And then someone pointed out to me once, kind of like those profound moments. Don't you love these? My great misread of the statement. You see this promise here? You see who it's given to? The you is plural, not singular. The promise is not given to you as an individual. Straight up, did you read it that way? Of course you did, you're American. I did too. But what Jesus says is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to y'all, to the koinonia as well. And I tell you this, there is more than enough given to the koinonia 
in our day and age so that there should never be anyone in need. And the comfort I gain from this passage is something astounding. But the call that I hear in my place of being from Jesus is this. Dave, are you part of the koinonia? Yes, Lord. What are you going to do about it? Amen. Amen.